Good morning. Can you all hear me okay? It is, for me, a great honor to be with you. I have been anticipating this time. I feel deeply privileged to be able to share the Word of God with you. I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time hanging out with Justin last night. We had we'd met, I think, maybe on one prior occasion, but just for the first time last night, had an opportunity to sit down. And, and as a guy who's been in ministry now for over 30 years, it's just, it's such an encouragement to me to be able to sit with, with young pastors like Justin who are sincere, who are sharp, who are self-reflective in ways that speaks of the activity of the Spirit. And so it just made me anticipate being with you all all the more this morning. So thanks for receiving me so warmly and so well. Um, just to mention that I, I, I serve with Sojourn Network. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word network, but Sojourn Network is filled with pastors, um, broken, bright, earthy pastors who, who love their local church but realize their local church will be stronger and their leadership will be stronger if they can have the opportunity to, or a place to go for counsel when they need counsel or for a perspective if there's something serious going on in the local church or training or supplemental care or any number of things that, that we enjoy together. But I, I mean, really just a place where they can sit with, with men who are unimpressed with the size of their intellect, or the size of their gifts, or their congregation, or their budget, and who can ask honest questions and, and insist on honest answers. But it's also filled with people who fill local churches, and local churches that love to plant churches like you do. And... We're, we're, we're partnering together because we realize we can do together what no one church can do alone. And part of the reason why I'm so excited about being here this morning is because we share this history together. This church found its origin out of Sojourn Community Church. Sojourn Network also found its origin and came out of Sojourn Community Church. So I'm just grateful to be able to develop this friendship and to be able to enjoy this time this morning. So thanks for receiving me. And now let's turn our attention to the most important thing, which is God's Word in Philippians chapter 4. I get to make a contribution to the Freedom Series. The title of this morning's message is Freedom Through Contentment. Freedom Through Contentment. And I'm just going to read three simple passages and then we'll pray and jump into it. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. 12 and 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. 
Lord, that last verse is just so inspiring and it grips our heart and it makes us want to desire more to understand what it means that you strengthen us, what it means that you can do all things through the strength that Jesus supplies us. And so I pray now as we open your word that you would instruct us on the secret of contentment that we can experience freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a question this morning. And the question is this, how do you do when you face some kind of incomplete goal or unfulfilled dreams? In fact, maybe you're there right now. Maybe you had a a vision for the path of your life, but you haven't even started down that path yet. Or maybe you can't find that path. Or maybe you're, you're on that path, but the journey is just so much slower than you ever expected it to be. And perhaps those incomplete goals or unfulfilled dreams or, or whatever you want to call them, maybe they, they kind of hover over you like a dark cloud that, 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 that can settle on the soul in the form of a statement. It's, it's a statement that haunts us at times and taunts us because it whispers this paralyzing thought, this paralyzing idea, idea straight into our soul. And here's the idea. By now, you should have been. And we fill in the blank. By now, you should have been a leader. By now, you should have been a better student. By now, you should have been married. You should have been employed in a better job. You should have been healthy. You should have had a better life. It is the voice of unsatisfied ambition, and you may not be aware of it, but it it can also be the voice of discontent. And where it ultimately delivers us is we don't feel free. We're not free. See, discontentment happens when our dreams are frustrated. In other words, we aspire to something, But God does not deliver it, so we stew in our self-pity and we wonder why God is so sloppy in the way that he runs our life. Because we have not what we desire. Now I want to say straight out of the gate that to want health, to want a godly spouse, to want leadership or the right job or a better income is not wrong. In fact, it can actually be a great sign of very good and godly ambitions and aspirations. But the real issue is how we feel and how we think and how we relate to God when we don't get what we want when we want it. Because, as John Calvin once said, that the evil lies not in the desires. It's that we desire too much. And when... These aspirations and dreams and desires that we have become demands from God. People become discontent. People become bound in the chains and imprisoned by their own desires because we live more aware that we have not what we desire. 
Now, there are a number of things I want to talk about this morning, but I want to telegraph to you right up front where we're headed. In fact, what I believe from this passage is a, is a key to contentment, and it is summed up in the words of one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, who once said, this quote, he once said, if you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. Okay, so that's our destination. And I'm going to suggest that's a feature of this passage as well. But, but for the moment, let's just move that off to the side. Let's just hang that over here. Leave it hanging suspended. And let's jump back into the context, back into Paul's life, and back to a little line-on-line exposition on what's going on in Philippians chapter 4. So, I mentioned Paul. We meet him again right here in Philippians. And by the way, remember, Paul, when he's writing this, is not kind of perched atop a high back chair in a cushioned office and just kind of penning these reflections that he has coming into his mind. Paul's in prison. Paul's in prison, but he's testifying to this freedom that he has in contentment. And, and we've got to get behind that and dig beneath that and understand what it is that he's experiencing because it's apparently something we can learn as well. And so he's, he's writing to the Philippians, and the Philippians are experiencing some attacks from the outside, bigger things on the inside. They've got some disunity issues. But in chapter 4, Paul addresses specifically their financial support. And this is kind of where he's at when we, as, as he begins talking about contentment. He thanks God for their financial support, but he says he doesn't need their financial support. In fact, let's just say, listen to how he says it. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. This is verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Okay, he's talking there first about the financial support, but it clearly goes beyond that because he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's talking about all of life here. Okay, now let's just for a second, let's just tap the brakes. And let's, let's think again about who it is that's writing as we are exploring this idea of freedom. Paul's in prison. Paul is restrained. He is confined. He is in prison, constrained, confined. But this is what he's saying. But I'm not in need. I don't have needs, really. How does that work? How did he, the prisoner, get there? Well, he tells us. He says it's because he's unlocked this secret. That Jeremiah Burroughs calls the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And this is how Paul described it. He says, in whatever situation I am, I've learned to be content. And he doesn't just leave us speculating on what that could possibly mean. He, said, he basically frames out. He says, I can abound and I can be brought low. I can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need without being plagued by that statement of, by now I should have been Somewhere different than what I am, something more than what God has made me to be. You know, the book of Philippians is a, is a there's a kind of paradox to it, a, this tension 
that we find when it comes to contentment and desire. Because just in chapter 3, Paul has exhorted the Philippians to press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He's exhorting them. He's saying, go for it. Press on. Go for it in the goal. Forget what lies behind. But then all of a sudden, it skids to a halt in chapter 4 where he says, but you know what? Be content with what you have. And there's this, I call it a paradox, an apparent contradiction where, where Paul is able to live hungering for more, but happy with less. Paul is able to be ambitious and to aspire to that which is new, but be satisfied with the old. He's able to sit in prison and yet be desirous of being with them, to take the gospel to all new places, to have a faith to be able to serve them, and not have the fact that he's not able to get out and serve them personally or get out and do all the things he wants to do in life, consume him and eat away at him. The fact that life hasn't delivered in the way he expected for this phase of his life, just eat him up from the inside. That's just not where he is. In other words, for Paul, there's this sense where he was able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations. Actually, able to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations without abandoning his dreams. And I say that because, you know, one of the ways that we try to punish God for the poor decisions that we think he makes in our life is by giving up our dreams for him. See, the average Christian is not going to say, oh, I get it. You know, you have this will. You don't share it with me. I never know what's going on. I've asked you for this repeatedly. You didn't deliver it. You don't explain yourself. So I'm bailing on you. I'm not being a Christian anymore. That's not what the average Christian does. The average Christian says, oh, I can't. I've got these why questions. You never feel responsible or obligated to give me any sense of what's going on. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to step off of the track, and I'm going to take a seat in the stands. And I'll still be in the game, but I'm not going to be running. I'm not going to be exerting. I'm not going to be aspiring and dreaming for how to, of how to use my gifts for your glory. I'll be over there on the sideline. You want me, you come get me. See, for Paul, his, his sense of significance was not situational. His sense of identity was not attached to his status, was not attached to what he was doing. In fact, his peace and freedom did not rest in anything outside of Jesus Christ. He was a, a God-sufficient Christian. Yeah, you know, I, I read this quote about about John, Jonathan Edwards. I, I think it was in Marsden's biography on Jonathan Edwards, where where this observation was made about Jonathan Edwards. Somebody said his happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And I remember hearing that, thinking, I, you know, I cannot say that about myself. I can't say that my happiness is, not, is, is outside of the reach of my wife or my kids. I see my happiness blow out the door all the times when parenting doesn't, 
doesn't develop in the way I expected. His happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. What about you? Because really we're talking about freedom here. Is your happiness outside of the reach of your spouse, your professor, your boss, your grades? Now, I understand, you know, when we hear these things about men and women in history, we hear them about Paul, and it, it just seems like this is a, you know, this is an untouchable thing. This is just something that Paul had. You know, Paul went to the third heaven. I've never been there. Maybe he got this as a consolation prize for leaving the third heaven. You know, you get the whole contentment package when you're up there, and then you come home, and you turn it on, and it just works in life. But this is Paul's testimony. He says, I have learned secret. Now, this one didn't come with the conversion package. Don't you wish it did? You know, you get converted, or maybe it, like it would arrive in an email. You just you just push, click, attach, boom. It's there. It's uploaded into your life. You're content. You weren't content. Now you're now you are content. But it doesn't work that way. This is learned. This is acquired. This is developed. And the good news for us this morning is. It was available to Paul. It is available to us as well. And so, if you're asking the question, well, okay, I'm interested, how? Well, let's just, let's just keep reading through the passage. Let's go to verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So it's almost like Paul, by using these descriptive words, is, is, is specifying the field of play for our contentment. All of these different life experiences that we can have, abounding, brought low, plenty, hunger, abundance and need... It's almost like there, you know, there's two, there's an entire field with two spectrums, two, two ends of two spectrums. And, and down on the one side is this time, these times we're abounding, where, where our contentment engages our dreams and our desires. And, and, and all of life kind of plays out somewhere on, the, on this field of, 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 of plenty and want, abundance and need. And, and, and so down on the one side, as I was saying, there's, there's the good times, there's, there's the abundance, there's the, the, the plenty, there's the abounding. He's talking about times when your dreams are fully satisfied. Paul uses those words, abounding, plenty, abundance. You know, you get the raise. Or she says yes. Or you've been trying to get pregnant for, for years and all of a sudden you're pregnant and it's, it's wonderful. Or you, or you pass the test or you get elected for the role or whatever it is. But the, the point is, it's one of those seasons where our dreams are coming alive and life is getting good. And our desires are fat and happy. In fact, to use the Watson quote, we have what we desire. Now don't miss this. This is what Paul says. He says, yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to abound. I know how 
to be in abundance. I mean, does your mind work like mine? I mean, isn't there this instinct to think, uh, yeah, don't we all? Lord, Lord, dost thou doubt that thy servant Dave knows how to do abundance? Lord, smite me with a Lexus and I will show thee that I can do abundance in a way that glorifies you. And have you ever noticed that our dreams are always dreams of abounding and abundance? It's just, it's rare to dream low, you know? It's, a, it's rare to aspire to be poor. You know? Johnny wants to be homeless. Go, Johnny, go. You never hear parents saying that. Because to dream is to aspire to a better future. But here's the point that Paul's ultimately arriving at, and we have to get there as well, as we will never find freedom. And that is that our happiness can't be linked to a satisfied dream. Our life can't be linked to a vision of the future where we are always ascending, things are always coming alive, things are always abounding, always in abundance. Because that's just not life. Always abounding is just not the reality of the human experience. But there's another side of it as well. And this is what Paul discerned. And that is that sometimes our greatest temptations can come not through trial and affliction, which is down on the other end of the field, but through abounding and abundance and plenty. You know, there's this curious proverb, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, where it says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. You never think it's going to end there. You do not think that's where that proverb is going. You You think certainly that last word is going to be a man is tested by his affliction. A man is tested by his pain. A man is tested by his praise. Think about the visuals there, crucible, furnace. They both test things by heating them up. There is a way that praise, abounding, being well spoken of, praise heats the soul and tests the soul and can reveal the soul and can imprison the soul. I mean, in Esther, you know, the book of Esther, you've got, you've got Haman. Haman was second in command in that kingdom. And everyone bowed to pay homage to Haman. Everyone except one dude named Mordecai. So where does that story go? Well, Haman lives the rest of his life deeply grateful that almost everybody in the kingdom bowed to him. And thought, wow, what a great life I've been given. That almost everybody bows and worships me. Is that the story? No. Haman launches a campaign to exterminate all of the Jews. Why? Because one man would not praise him. The praise of most was not enough. The praise of almost everyone was not enough. He wanted, he needed, he was imprisoned by needing the praise of all. Another great quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, quote, The Christian, listen to this. Oh man, does this convict me. The Christian more often disgraces his profession in prosperity 
than when he's being abased. More often in prosperity, more often down that end of the field, more often in those times when we are abounding and in abundance and aren't aware of our need. And here's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, yeah, I got that. I learned that. I discerned those temptations. And so what I did is I treated plenty and hunger just the same. I treated them both as places where I could potentially seek my satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. And so there's that one set of experience, abundance, abundance, abounding, abundance. But then he talks about this whole other side of, of being in need, of facing hunger. Those times when our desires, our ambitions, our aspirations are absolutely starved. Paul talks about it as being brought low, facing hunger. Facing need, the hard times, the by now I should have been times. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you're, you're passed over at work. You should have gotten the job. Everybody knows you should have gotten the job. You didn't get the job. We had these ideas, and you know, you were you were very excited about them, and you rolled them out, and they're just totally rejected, and nobody sees what you see. Or you have this friend, or maybe it's a roommate, and, and they've disappointed you in a way that they've never, never thought that was ever going to happen. Or your marriage. I mean, you signed up for it thinking it was going to be this way, and it's so much harder than you ever thought marriage could be. Or your housing arrangement, which seems so perfect, has just exploded. Or you failed in some way that you never thought you would fail. In other words, you're in a season where it feels like your dreams are on a respirator gasping for air. Paul says, yeah, I know how to do that too. I know how to do that too. He says, I know how to be brought low. You know what that means? That means that Paul learned somehow that he, he could be content with unsatisfied dreams. He could be content with failure, content with mistakes, content with weaknesses. In fact, the lessons of contentment seem so important to God for Paul that God would ordain for Paul to be brought low. God would stick a thorn in his side to ensure that he was always almost daily perceptive of his weaknesses because absent that thorn, he would have exalted in something he should not have. He had weakness. You have weakness. I have weakness. And sometimes these kinds of things, they come unexpectedly. They come in big developments in our life. They come in a way that, that shocks us. It's almost like we're running down the road and we're, we're, we're heading right towards everything we think we want. Everything we think the Lord has for us. And, and all of a sudden this giant boulder drops out of the sky and we hit it so hard that we drop all of our dreams. We're disoriented and don't even know what to do. And, you know, the shock of hitting it, hitting this unexpected thing, just, just forces us to wonder, where is God? We don't even know up from down and can't orient ourselves in the situation. 
And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes a big boulder just kind of drops in life. But you know what? More often, it's, it's more like, rather than a big boulder, it's more like this little pebble that's in your shoe. And you're, you're walking the course that you feel called to walk, but you're just not walking it as fast as you want. Because you've got this, this thing in your shoe, you've got this pebble, and you want to be running, but you can't run. You kind of have to walk. And sometimes it hurts so bad, you have to just stop, and you don't want to stop, because you have such a vision to be moving forward in this area, and you feel like you're imprisoned by this pebble. And it can be an unexpected illness. It can be a huge financial hit that you never expected or a layoff or, you know, some physical limitation. Just some, some weakness that always dogs you. I, one day I'm, I'm sitting in our living room reading and, and I'm on a chair and Kim is sitting over on the couch reading and she stops and looks up and she says Dave, is one of the kids in the basement shower? and I said no, I don't think so she said oh, okay and I said oh, okay and I kind of went back to reading and then about 10 minutes later, I had this just this stray thought, this weird thought that just came from out of space and pierced my consciousness. It kind of went something like this. Wait a minute. We don't have a basement shower. And as I began to listen, I thought, and I do hear water running. And so I got up and I ran downstairs and I peeked around the corner and it was a sight to behold because what was happening is there was a big hole in the wall and there was a pipe behind the, the, the wall that had burst and had forced water out. It, it was such force that it broke through the wall. It was splashing across the basement. It was hitting off the other side of the basement wall. In fact, had it not been my house, I would have just stood there and admired it because it was an amazing thing. <laughs> But it was my house. And it was, but it was the, the basement was filling up with water. And I am so ill-equipped to know what to do in those moments. I'm running around the basement and I'm flipping lights on and off and I'm turning different, different screws and different knobs, just trying to get anything to turn off the water. So I've got this neighbor, Sal. <laughs> Sal knows how to do everything, you know. Sal, you know one of those guys. You just knows, like, hey, Sal, what do you do this week? Well, I had a couple of extra hours, so I put an addition on the house. It was just. <laughs> I'm going to do a helipad next week. You know, these guys that just knows how to do everything. And so Kim gets on the phone. Sal, it's happened again. Dave, Dave did something, and he doesn't know how to how to shut the water off. And so I'm in, the, I'm in the basement, the water's there's about two inches now, and Sal walks through the basement door, and he locks eyes with me, and he's walking across the basement, locks eyes, never breaks his stare with me, opens the door, reaches in, and shuts a valve off without even looking at it. The water shuts down, he turns around, he's looking at me still, he walks right out of the basement door. <laughs> Now, those are low moments. 
And I have a whole catalog of them. I'm on first-name basis with our insurance agent because of stories, a catalog of stories like that that I have that goes to an area of weakness, that goes to an illustration of how sometimes the, the pipe can just start gushing in the house. In fact, let me ask you, where, where's the pipe gushing in your house right now? Maybe it's your marriage. Is it the kids? Is it this economy? You know, the the economy is in a downturn and it's in an upturn and then a downturn and who knows what's going on or maybe it's your job that you've lost or, or an income reduction. Here's my point. It's laying some low. When the pipe gushes, it lays some low. Here's what Paul says. I've learned how to do that. I've learned to be brought low. In other words, his contentment was not circumstantial. His his freedom was not based upon what he was doing, where he was doing it, and who he was doing it with. It was not based on anything about where he was or what he was... that, That there was this sense that for Paul, God was the same for him... In plenty and want. Which is all just another way to say that Paul's happiness was not linked to a satisfied dream. His happiness was not linked to a, a vision of the future that he protected and that he demanded that God deliver on. And it's only if God delivers on this specific dream that God proves that he is real and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. ask you a question this morning. How do you do when your dreams and your life just don't intersect? You know, when when life just forces you down in an unexpected way rather than lifting you up. See, life changes when we begin to see the denial of our dreams a little differently. We tend to see him as punishment from God, as as a penalty from God. But I'm going to suggest that you begin to see it as God defining the path of your walk by denying certain things. It It encourages you to move in a direction that you would not go in any other way. I mean, I'm sure your life is like mine. And this is what what my life has been like over the last 35 years as a believer. It's kind of like, you know, the Christian journey is like walking down this hallway. and, 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 And along the hallway on both sides, there are these doors. And you come upon different doors, which are different senses of places you should be and experiences you should seize and opportunities that might open. You come upon a door and it seems like God is leading you through that door. In fact, it seems like after you have prayed, after you have sought counsel, after you have seen all of the objective and subjective data that could be brought to bear, that God, in fact, is behind that door for you. And he's waiting for you to come through the door so that you can have rich experiences with him. And you go to try the door, and the door is locked. In fact, it's not just locked, it is bolted shut, and it will not yield. 
And you try to push on the door. You try to squeeze and turn the handle. But it will not yield. You try to beat on the door. To open the door. To do anything. Because you think all of your dreams are behind that door. You think God himself is behind that door. But it will not yield. You bloody your fists beating on the door. Because you think if you can't get through this door, that somehow your life is going to be over or somehow you're going to miss God. But that door will not yield. And so ultimately we we collapse at the foot of the door thinking I have no idea what that was all about. And I don't even know who God is. And I don't even know where I'm supposed to be anymore. And we, we sit there and... Eventually, because God loves us, the Spirit of God stirs in us and reminds us of who God is and reminds us that that He controls all things and He's a good God and we get the strength to stand up and we keep moving down the hall. And we try the next door, which we didn't even think would ever open, and it opens and then maybe another one remains shut, three more open up. And all we know is that we're continuing down this hallway where God will stop some doors from opening, will open some doors that we never thought would open, but all along he is keeping us moving in the direction that he wants us to go in. And what we begin to learn is that God loves us so much that he will act decisively when the wrong ambitions might lead us in the wrong direction or I want you to think about this. That God will actually incite desires that he will not satisfy in this life. Because the only way to conform you to his character is through a delayed or denied desire. That lack of fulfillment is not your prison. That lack of fulfillment is your rescue. And God is at work. And there is no peace in life. There is no freedom in life until we become convinced that our place is his choice. Our place right now, his choice. Our marriage, this woman, this man, his choice. Our job, his choice. Doesn't mean it might not change later on this week. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to look, look for one, another one. Today, his choice. Our place, his choice. Paul got that. That's how the dude could be sitting in prison talking to us about contentment. So, you know, how, how are you doing with this? How do you do when, when your, your dreams and your life, you know, they don't intersect, they don't come together? When In those times where life is forcing you down. I, I brought another quote by, by, by Packer. This is just such a good quote. I want to read to you. J.I. Packer said, listen to this. He said, the world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of acrid smoke. 
Can I make an appeal this morning? I just want to make one appeal to you this morning, and that is don't buy the world's vision of success. Don't buy a vision or a dream of the future that says there is no place for trial. There is no place for failure. There is no place for unsatisfied desire. No place for unfulfilled aspirations. No place for I must decrease, but he must increase. See, people live their their whole lives craving worldly success, never realizing that God may ordain their hunger to save their soul. That God could ordain a prison to give them freedom. That God is more committed to our rescue than he is our earthly success. And Paul understood that. It's how he found peace in prison. That his success was not tied to his ascent. His success came through learning the secret that links his identity elsewhere. That, 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 that our happiness can't be linked, linked to a future that's always abounding. In fact, our happiness is more linked to the past. It's not, it's not, it's not linked to just past good life. It's linked to past suffering. Which is why this entire line of thought converges in verse 13. It's the secret of contentment unveiled. And this is how Paul says it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now when Paul says him who strengthens, that he can do all things through him, probably a better translation is in him. He's talking about in Jesus Christ. He's saying that contentment is learned in Jesus Christ. Contentment is learned by becoming experts at enjoying and experiencing and, and examining what it means to be in Jesus Christ, which is what returns us to what I was saying earlier from Thomas Watson. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. This is what I mean. At the heart of discontent lies this singular conviction. I don't have what I deserve. In this situation, this is outrageous. I don't have what I deserve. This is an unjust injustice. I don't have what I deserve. And see what the gospel does is the gospel breaks in and answers with this cheery news. You're absolutely right. You don't have what you deserve. And you can thank God for that. See, the heart of discontent is this subtle comparison with what others have that produces in us this conviction that we are not getting what we deserve. But what the gospel does is the gospel turns that complaint upon its head by reminding us that regardless of our state, be it humble or exalted, plenty or need, what regardless of our state, we live infinitely above what we truly deserve. I mean, one sin, one sin was enough to sentence us to hell forever. And I don't know about you, but I'm working with hundreds of those things every week. And all it took was one. And yet Christ substituted himself and took the penalty that I deserved for my hundreds and hundreds of sins each week. And then he gave me, gave us a treasure 
that we could never earn so that perspective arrives in our life as we get our eyes off of our neighbor, off of the horizontal, and on to the gospel as we look up rather than looking across. See, most people think that contentment comes through like comparisons. You know, that we should be able to walk through the hood in D.C. and see other people that are not as good off as we are. And we should be able, by virtue of that contrast, achieve a higher level of, of peace. As if the key to contentment is just horizontal. You know, we just compare ourselves with those in less favorable situations and we get it. Well, that can be helpful, but that's not the point. The point is we don't ultimately find contentment by comparing ourselves to those who are worse off. We find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserve. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. See, the gospel, what it does for us each and every day is it brings freedom. And how it brings freedom is that it reminds us of what we deserve. That we who were spiritually wretched, that we were lost, miserable, broken human beings. And what's more, we clung prideful to that place and utterly unable to do anything about it. Utterly impotent to be able to change our condition whatsoever or to alter our circumstances. We were incomprehensibly committed to our own destruction. But God, who was rich in mercy came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and wrenched us free from our irrational commitment to our own destruction and by dying in our place he gave us reason to live and hope that we can live again so we live grateful and we live satisfied and we live content not because we have all we want but because we have received far more than we deserve and brothers and sisters, that's the secret of contentment. And, and when we have it, it frees us to be at rest in the present and yet still dream about the future. To live at peace in the present while we still burn for more and ask for more and strive for more and pray for more and press for more and expect more and live for more and yes, if necessary, die for more. So, if you're here this morning and you have not what you want, you're in the right place. Take comfort. Don't take a break. You have not what you desire, but you have more than you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reality of your gospel, for the difference that it's made, for the way that it can bring us peace right now regardless of our circumstances, and for the way that it reminds us this morning that we live infinitely above what we truly deserve. In Jesus' name we pray.